This reading comes from Genesis, chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. It can be found on page 5. Cain and Abel. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain's and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was an angry and Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will not be accepted. But if you do not, you do, not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must overrule it. Now Cain said to his brother, Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You restless, you, you're a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark, mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much. Has anyone ever taken the tube from Charing Cross to Embankment? I have, en route to an interview on the Strand, for which I was cutting it a bit fine, and it's quite a palaver. Lots of underground corridors to walk along, escalators to go up and down, wait for a tube, go one stop, more escalators, but it gets you from Charing Cross down to Embankment Station, or vice versa. So, what's wrong with taking a tube from Embankment to Charing Cross? Well, it's madness. It's about 50 metres between the stations, less than a minute's walk, and as I used to work just along the Strand, having eventually got to that interview, I now know very well that it's much more sensible just to stroll down the hill. Our knowledge of London is like a jigsaw which you slowly piece together. When you first move to Parsons Green, you'll probably get to know Fulham pretty well. You'd know how to get to Putney or to Wandsworth, 
as they're just over the river. But if you're in Putney and you want to get to Wandsworth, over Putney Bridge, down New King's Road, Wandsworth Bridge Road, and you're there. Then you might find a shortcut past the Hurlingham Club. And what a bombshell when you discover the Upper Richmond Road and you don't have to cross the river at all. Our knowledge of the Old Testament is a bit like that. We might know bits and pieces. Adam and Eve, Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat, a couple of Psalms. But it's often difficult to put stories into context, so much of it is at best unfamiliar and at worst a bit odd. Which isn't great when the New Testament tells us that all scripture is God-breathed. Well, the good news is, in the same way that we have maps and GPSs to help us find our way around London, so there are tools to help us find our way around the Old Testament. Tim's recent talks on covenant and upcoming talks on kingdom help us to see some of the main themes. Bible reading notes and commentaries are a great help. But still, the best way of knowing our way around both London and the Old Testament is to go and explore. Over the next few weeks, we'll be doing just that as we investigate the characters of Hebrews 11. As Johnny said, Hebrews 11 lists some key personalities of the Old Testament, often referred to as the heroes of the faith. The author using their example of living by faith as a spur to his readers to persevere as Christians. I suspect we could all do with just such a spur. So before we look at the first of these heroes, let's pray. Lord, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Amen. Abel's the first of the Old Testament heroes. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. As if by magic. Two key questions. Why was Abel commended as righteous, and why was his offering better? So to answer those questions, please keep your Bibles open at Genesis 4. We'll leave the Hebrews verse up on the screen to save you flicking back and forth. And to guide us through the passage, I've divided it into some easy-to-digest sections. The brother's attitude, God's acceptance or not, Cain's anger, and Cain's alienation. So firstly, the brother's attitude. Adam and Eve have broken God's rules, so have been expelled from the Garden of Eden, literally heaven on earth. But already, there is hope in new life. Verses one and two. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Any second children here? I'm the younger one, and this is classic stuff, isn't it? With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Not even another man. Cain and his brother. Interesting for psychologists, but not evidence in itself as to why Abel was commended as righteous or why his offering was better. So I'll plow on. What do the names Cain and Abel mean? Now people call their children after celebrities. 
or after grandparents, which is lovely, though my grandfather was called Hubert. But in biblical times, names really meant something. Cain means I have possessed, I have gotten, or I have achieved. Abel means empty, meaningless, mere breath. Psychologists are sharpening their pencils furiously now, but still no evidence of why Abel was commended as righteous or why his offering was better. So what about career choice? Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. Cain, I have achieved, worked the soil. It was hard work and everyone knew it. Cain would probably have been aware of what had happened in Genesis 3, maybe overhearing his mum and dad having the odd argument about it. Certainly not the proudest moment in family history, but I think Cain would be aware that God had said to his parents, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, and by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. But Cain was up to the challenge. He could achieve and master the soil. I think Cain would argue that he was justifiably proud when he brought some of the fruits of the soil, fruits of his labor, as an offering to the Lord. Whilst Cain worked the soil, Abel kept flocks. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think shepherds are soft or have an easy life. I was brought up in Northumberland, where the hills can be an inhospitable place in winter, and in the summer, for that matter. So shepherds are carved from granite, with hands like shovels and no neck. But the wording here indicates more of a passive role for mere breath. He tends the flocks. Not quite so much sweat on his brow, I think Abel would argue that God did most of the work. As he led the flock around, God grew the grass. So of course he would bring fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. All things come from you, and of your own do we give you. It's a whole different talk. But this is what true worship looks like. Abel in faith brings the best cuts of the firstborn of the flock. So, God's acceptance or non-acceptance. Look at verse 7. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Why was Abel commended as righteous and why was his offering better? Picture the scene. You're Cain, you're standing before God, and you've worked really hard to produce an impressive hamper of organic veg. So you're pretty confident that you're going to get a pat on the back, maybe even a ticket back into Eden. But you don't. And not only does God not look on you and your offering with favor, but he does with your meaningless little brother. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. Cain's put the effort in. Cain's the one sweating in the fields. Cain's the firstborn. But it's Abel who's accepted. Why? According to Hebrews 11, because by faith he brought a better offering than Cain did. It's not the content of the offering that impresses God. It's the attitude. Notice in verses four and five, their names are mentioned before the offering. And Cain's attitude is a reflection of his name. I have achieved. Abel's, Lord, I am nothing, help me. 
Here in the fourth book of the Bible is a warning against approaching God in our own strength and on our own terms. Cain approached God with an offering, but his attitude was Cain-centered, not God-centered. So Cain is engaging in religious ritual. It's a continuing theme throughout the Old Testament and into the New. Just look at the Pharisees. But despite constant warnings from God throughout Scripture, starting here in Genesis 4, we just can't help ourselves from taking the way of Cain. If I say enough Hail Marys, if I become a church warden, if I open up a couple more of my chakras, if I help that little old lady across the road, if I go to church every week, if I strap on this explosive waistcoat and blow up that plane, then I will earn acceptance from God. Genesis 4 tells us that doesn't work. The children in Busy Bees could tell you, man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. So what are the fruits of Cain's religiousness? Cain's anger. Cain longs to be accepted by God. So when he's rejected, Cain is, verse 5, very angry, and his face is downcast. Religiousness does that. As we realize that we can't be good enough, we try harder and harder, resenting God and hating God's people. If you're a Christian approaching God by faith, don't be surprised if pious people hate you. Mere breath can be a constant reminder to, I have achieved, that they're not achieving. So Cain is angry and murders his brother. So religious men were angry and murdered their Messiah. Cain's alienation. Genesis 4 shows Cain spiraling down into deeper and deeper sin. Whilst God urges him to do what is right, he can't, if as far as Cain is concerned, it's all about Cain. Look at verse 13. My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. Even when he's killed his brother, he's more concerned with the consequences of his punishment than the heinousness of the crime. The sin that had been crouching at his door mastered him. Cain assumes that God doesn't care about him and God is driving him from God's presence. But actually God is protecting him and Cain is choosing to leave God's presence by putting himself in God's place. So that's one way to live. Cain's way, trusting in your own strength, your own achievements and attempting to climb up to God. What about Abel? I haven't talked much about mere breath. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. Abel still speaks to us thousands of years later through God's, worth, through God's word. And by faith, Abel tells us to keep trusting God. Though life is difficult and though life may be cut short, keep trusting God. By faith. By faith, he listened to God's word and acted on it. That's what all the heroes of Hebrews 11 did. So Hebrews 11 finishes, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, 
so that only together with us would they be made perfect. What's the something better? Hebrews 12, verse 24. The something better is Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel was faithful without the benefit of knowing what we know. He was faithful to God before God had provided the mechanism for us to be made perfect. The perfect offering, the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. So what does the blood of Abel tell us? To trust God by faith. What does the blood of Jesus tell us? Well, that's amongst other things, how and why we can trust God by faith. Because he's already fulfilled his promise. He's already done what he covenanted to do. He's dealt with the problem of how we can be made perfect through the perfect offering, the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, once for all, so that all may be saved. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. We don't have to keep scrambling up a ladder of religiousness to get to God. Jesus comes down, he takes us by the hand, so that we, like the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, can be made perfect. I'm sure you're all aware of the cheesy jokes which begin, an HR manager dies and finds herself or himself at the gates of heaven. And St. Peter says, never had an HR manager before, not sure whether we should let you in. Or an Englishman, an Irishman, a Scotsman die and they find themselves at the pearly gates and the angel says, we're a bit full at the moment, we've only got room for two, which two should we let in? It's not a very helpful image and uh, not one born from systematic biblical scholarship. But here's a top tip for the three friends or the HR manager. When asked, why should I let you in? Don't start by saying, because I... Start by saying, because Jesus, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Let's pray. Lord, help us, like Abel, to trust you by faith, so that the sin that is crouching at our door would not devour us, but that we would do what is right, putting our trust in you and your strength. Help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus. Amen. Just before we move to our offertory hymn, let's just have a moment to respond in our hearts to what Nick has been saying. As we think about some of the times maybe we've been trying to earn God's approval rather than just receive his grace. The times where we think it's up to us, where we've tried to trust in our own strength, our own abilities, our own hard work. Lord, thank you that everything comes from you. And all that we need to do is receive 
what you've done for us and what you've given to us. I pray that by your spirit you would confirm these things in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us um, stand and sing our offertory hymn, To God Be the Glory. And this is a chance uh, for people to give financially to uh, the work of this church. But again, feel no pressure, especially for a visitor, just to pass um, the bags along without embarrassment. Please remain standing as we give thanks for the generosity of this community.
Lord, thank you for your provision to us, for your kindness to us. And Lord, may we use these gifts for your glory, trusting in your goodness and kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do seat, sit down. As we come now to the final prayer of blessing. Uh, there's tea and coffee at the back, um, and um, it's been lovely to see you all, and I hope to see you again next week. Just a final um, prayer of blessing before we leave. From Ephesians 3, verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.